Well, this morning will be the third and final sermon in our series on evangelism. And next week, we're going to begin a sermon series on prayer that will take us through the Lord's Prayer. So we're going to look at the Lord's Prayer, not as it's the only way that we should pray, but it does guide us. The Lord gave the Lord's Prayer to his disciples to teach them how to pray. And so we're going to we're going to focus on prayer and what it means to be a church that prays and to grow in prayer by looking at the Lord's Prayer. Now, if you remember, if you were here in the first sermon on evangelism, we answered two questions. The questions were, what is evangelism and who should evangelize? And I'm boiling down a 45-minute sermon in one sentence. So if you were there and you weren't a big fan of the sermon, I'm sorry, um, but here's a summary. I thought it was a good sermon, so hopefully it was helpful to you. But if you weren't uh, there and you haven't heard the sermon, this is, this is in a sentence the summary of those two questions. What is evangelism and who should evangelize? Evangelism is teaching the gospel with the aim to persuade, and every Christian is to take part in the work of evangelism. Then last week, Pastor Jesse answered the question, why do we evangelize? The ultimate motivation for our evangelism is the glory of God. Jesus is Lord and Savior, the true King overall. He lived a sinless life. He died a sinner's death in order to purchase the people for his own possession who would proclaim his excellencies in the world. So as Christians, we evangelize first and foremost because we desire God to receive the honor, praise, and worship that he rightfully deserves. That's why we evangelize. A second motivation is out of love for non-Christians. We want non-Christians, those we know, we love, we interact with strangers who don't know Christ, to be reconciled to God. And apart from them responding to the gospel by repenting of their sins and trusting in Christ, they will remain separated from God now and forever. We want, Christ, we want non-Christians to see, to savor, to enjoy the God of the Bible. We want them to see Christ rightly as King, as Lord, as Savior, as most glorious, the one to be treasured. And so we share the good news with people who are not Christians. In this final sermon, we will consider three, three questions. First, where should we evangelize? Then when should we evangelize? And how should we evangelize? So I ask you again, if you haven't already, pull out your Bible or the Pew Bible below the seats in front of you and turn to 2 Corinthians 4, 1 through 15, which has been our, our main passage in this series. 2 Corinthians 4, 1 through 15. In the Pew Bible, you'll find this passage on page 965. It won't be on the screen. I'll be reading verses from this passage throughout the sermon again, so I really do encourage you to pull out the Bible, either your Bible, your phone, your smartphone, your app, and get the text in front of you. 2 Corinthians 4, 1 through 15. <coughs> Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, 
has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. This is God's word for God's people. May we hear it, believe it, and obey it. And now let's pray for God's help in these things. Glorious awesome God, our God who is in heaven but is not an impersonal God who lives among us and in us by his spirit, we begin in prayer by recognizing that you are glorious, you are mighty, you are amazing, you are the treasure of the gospel. We get to be in relationship with you and your people. What a sweet and glorious truth. Father, in light of your glory, of of the, the reality that we should all worship you with every single bone in our body, with every single breath, we confess that, that we fall short. And we're so grateful for your patience. That even as we're we're drawn to other things, as we take our focus off of Christ, you lovingly, as only you, our Father in heaven, can do this. You turn our focus back to you, back to Christ, back to your word, and you remind us of the great work that you have done. We confess our need for you. Apart from you working in our hearts, we will not change. We will remain in whatever sin we are caught up in. We will continue to struggle and we will experience defeat. But by your grace, as you continue to work in our lives, you will be glorified and we will become more like your son, Jesus. Father, we need your help now. I need your help. I pray that you would overcome the deficiencies in my preaching and you would feed your people well through the preaching of your word. We give you thanks and honor and praise because you are the giver of every good gift, whether it be a child, and we celebrate with those who are rejoicing at the birth of their first children, and we rejoice in the news of of engagements, and we praise you for upcoming weddings, and, and all of the blessings, the good gifts that you give, they come from your hand to point us back to you. And may some in this place see all of the good that you have done in their lives and give you thanks and praise. Father, we ask now that you would press upon our hearts areas where our lives don't line up with your word, that you would give us strength and faith and you increase our passion to share the gospel with those who don't know Christ, to live in light of the gospel and to be lights in a dark world in desperate need of Christ. 
And we pray this all for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to start this morning with the questions, where and when should we evangelize? So I'm going to tackle these two together. I admit that there are places and times that are less conducive to evangelism. Though God could bless our efforts to evangelize in the bathroom, I've found that that is not the ideal place to, over the, the stall, share the good news about Jesus Christ with people. I mean, again, you know, if, if that's your spot, that's where you love to evangelize, okay, go for it. But I've just found it as, as a less than ideal place. Uh, another example of a, a less than ideal time might be when somebody is clearly in a rush. You, maybe you know them, maybe you don't know them, but... but it, you want to share the gospel with them and, and it becomes clear that they have no interest in talking to you about the things of God or last night's Brewers game and you don't want to talk about last night's Brewers game anyways and they're in a rush to, to get going and it would not do you well and it doesn't seem like they're open to you having them sit down and just laying out the gospel before them. However, as people who have been freed from slavery to sin, rescued from the domain of darkness, brought into the kingdom of God, we are to be willing to evangelize wherever and whenever God gives us opportunities. So I'm not saying we force it. I'm not saying we, we, we make it this thing where we're, we're, we're not leaving a conversation unless we lay out the gospel before them. But we need to be a people that are always willing, whenever and wherever we can, to share the gospel. And yet so often, in certain places, and it, it might vary for, for all of us, and at certain times, we don't evangelize because we are really, really good at convincing ourselves that it's just not the right time or the right place to talk about what God has done in Christ with a non-Christian. It's too quiet. It's too loud. It's too early. It's too late. I'm too busy. They are too busy or my kids are just acting too crazy. And that's what I was telling myself this past Friday evening when we were at a park, and I'm small talking with another father who's brought his little girl to the same playground where my three rowdy boys are playing on the jungle gym set, and he's put her in danger. We're talking, and, and, and we're making the small talk, and I'm thinking, I want to share the gospel with this guy. I'm preaching on evangelism. It's my passion to share the gospel. Small talk, small talk. And my kids are crazy. The daughter is at risk. One of my boys who will go nameless is body slamming two of his other brothers. He's tackling, he's pushing, he's being sneaky. And I'm thinking, how can I share the gospel with this man when I need to go discipline my children or at least one of them and save that little girl's life? And so I'm, all these things are going through my head and I convince myself that, that I shouldn't share the gospel in that moment with that man. There always seems to be a good reason not to evangelize. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm all for using wisdom and discernment to, to being, being aware of their, their body language, they're closed off, they really are not interested in talking at all. But if many of us, and myself included, were half as committed to evangelism as we are at persuading ourselves not to evangelize, so many more people would hear the gospel of Jesus Christ in this community. We might tell ourselves that, that we don't know what to say when it comes to evangelism. But if we've been a Christian for, for any amount of time, a sh even a short amount of time, and if we're a part of a local church that proclaims the gospel and teaches the Bible faithfully, then we know more than enough to evangelize. And, and I, I believe that that's true of most of you in this sanctuary. 
So it's really not a matter of where or when we should evangelize. We should seek to proclaim Christ wherever and whenever we can. The real issue is with how we should evangelize. How should we share the gospel with family that might be opposed to hearing the good news? We've tried before, or we've, we've tried to try before, and it didn't go anywhere. Friends who we know we haven't had a good conversation about the gospel in, in, in a long time, but we know where they stand. How do we share the gospel with neighbors that we've built a relationship with, a, a friendship? They know we go to church, that, that we, we believe in, in Christ. How do we share the gospel with them? Coworkers that we've worked with for 15, 20 years maybe, and we've never talked about Christ with them. How do we share the gospel with the waitress at our favorite restaurant? Our dentist, our teacher, our student, our teammate, our barber, the person sitting next to us on a plane, or that parent that's talking with us at the park. Now, in answering the question of how we should evangelize, we could focus on a specific approach or method of evangelism and, and try to get really good at that one method or approach. For example, we could consider the, the method of evangelism known as the way of the master. I think many of you are familiar with this. It, it uses the Ten Commandments to show a person that they are a sinner who has broken God's law and that apart from God extending his grace to them, well, they will, they will be receiving his wrath because they've broken his law and that they are in need of a savior and that savior alone is Jesus Christ who fulfilled the law perfectly and he alone can save them and so they must repent of their sins and trust in Christ as their Lord and savior. That's one method we could focus on. Or we could get more familiar with the Roman road, which I referenced a few weeks ago, which uses key passages in the book of Romans to explain the gospel. Just walk people through the book of Romans, key passages. And it's a great method because you can just go in your Bible and underline or highlight these passages and just turn to the book of Romans and start and just make your way through Romans and share the gospel. We could, we could do that. There's also the four spiritual laws made popular by Campus Crusade, a method of evangelism that uses these four statements backed up with scripture references to explain the gospel to somebody. We could also revisit the outline that I gave to you two weeks ago of the gospel, which is meant not to, you just rehearse these things, but as you're in a conversation, you make sure you hit these bullet points and you seek to point them to Christ. God, man, Christ, response. These four points that you want to you weave into a conversation as you point them to Christ. We could also revisit and look closer at the other outline that I mentioned, creation, fall, redemption, consummation. Now, all of these methods, all of these approaches, all of these outlines can be used in in evangelism, but all of them are simply tools to help us better evangelize, to make sure we're getting the basics of the gospel before someone. And so depending on the situation, the extent of our relationship with a person, the dynamics in that relationship, Depending on the where and the when, we might use a different one of these tools or we might scrap them all and use a different one or our own. If we're walking next to a stranger on the street, many of us would not pick the way of the master, though, though some of us might be really gifted at that. They, they, they might use it all the time and they might have seen fruit in that. Many of us would find it really hard to just corner a stranger and say, you know you've broken every one of God's laws. Let me just walk you through that. That would be difficult for many of us. Now, if we're talking to Uncle Wilbur, or whatever your uncle's name is at the family get-together, depending on the closeness of our relationship and the, the setting, we may or may not be able to take him down the Roman road while Aunt Bertha's blowing out the 85 candles on the birthday cake and your kids, again, are wild and crazy and they're screaming around and running at the party. That might not be an option for you. 
So rather than focus on a specific method of evangelism, I'm going to focus on five things from 2 Corinthians 4, 1 through 15 that I believe are to be true about our evangelism as a church. So if we think about the, the big picture, these, I'll call them traits or values or characteristics, should be true of our evangelism. Because whatever tool we use to share the gospel, these things should be part of how we evangelize. They should be evident in our evangelism. First, we need to evangelize honestly. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4.2, But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. To evangelize honestly means that we will not trick or manipulate people in an attempt to get them to agree with us or to pray a sinner's prayer. No one is duped into the kingdom of God. They must be born again, and only God can do that. It's not that we don't aim to persuade. It's not that we don't seek to to use apologetics if, if we can do that. It's not that we don't get emotional at times as we're evangelizing because we desperately want this person to know the grace of God in Jesus Christ, be reconciled to God. We might get emotional. We're not manipulating anything. We're, we're, we're burdened for the person's soul. But it's that we don't deceive people. If we don't know an answer, we say, I don't know. I'll, I'll need to get back to you on that. If we're sharing the gospel and we say something and then 10 seconds later we realize, well, I just... I, I said that wrong. I, I didn't mean to communicate. We confess that to the person. We say, you know what, I, I, I went about that wrong. Let me re-explain what I was trying to say just a few minutes ago about grace or sin or whatever it might be. We must not rely on gimmicks. We're not selling a product or closing a deal. We are proclaimers of Christ crucified and resurrected. <laughs> We are God's news anchors telling people about what God has already done in Christ. We are a people that exist to proclaim his excellencies. We don't need to and we should not rely on gimmicks, cheesy things that, that, that get people to think, you know, they might have a place and some of you might be really good at using them, but, but don't rely on gimmicks. You're announcing the good news of Jesus Christ. To evangelize honestly means that we're committed to sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ that has been entrusted to us by God. A a gospel that has been passed down and preached since the first century, passed down every single generation since has preached it. Even in, in the dark ages and even before the Reformation, it was being preached. So we will not change, edit, or adjust the gospel because it's God's gospel. It's it's our gospel in that we've been saved by it and we believe it, but it's God's gospel. God the Father ordained the gospel. God the Son accomplished the gospel. And God the Spirit applies the gospel. Who are you and I to mess with the gospel? Friends, we can't improve it. It's God's gospel. It's perfect. And to change it or to preach something lesser is to preach a different gospel. And Paul says there is ultimately no other gospel. We can't improve it. You know, we, by nature, and this is part of us being created in the image of God, the creator, we like to innovate and we like to create. And that's really good in certain cases. You think about the advancements that we've made by, by God's common grace in, in technology, in, in medicine, all these wonderful things that, that we've been able to, to advance and, and improve. 
But this is, this is one thing that we cannot advance, improve, innovate on, and that's the gospel. Paul says we refuse to tamper with God's word. There's this clear, like, we're not going to mess with the gospel. And it, by implication, means that other people were already then, in the first century, tampering with the gospel. And if you read through 2 Corinthians, you'll see that. Paul's giving this defense of his gospel ministry because there were other people that were preaching a different gospel. They had tampered with the gospel. Sometimes we say, oh, it's, it's gotten so much worse in the church. And to some degree, we, we might be right. But in another way, it's, it's always been messed with. People are always trying to tweak and change and, and, and adjust the gospel to fit their own needs or what they think are people's needs. The word tamper is a word that was used to describe wine merchants who would dilute their wine at the market in order to sell more wine and make more money. That's a great description of what happens when we tamper, when we adjust, when we edit the gospel. The way a person tampers with the gospel is by watering it down. That's the main way that somebody might tamper with the gospel. Changing it so that they think it's more, in such a way that they think it's more acceptable in hopes that more people will believe it. Now I get that the motivation for tampering with the gospel for some people is that they want more people to believe it. Common man, common uh, modern man, modern woman may, may think this gospel is foolish. What does the Bible say? It is foolishness to those who are perishing. So we don't need to make it less foolish. We don't need to, to make it more believable we, because we can't. It's not ours to mess with. A typical way that this watering down is done today is to drop the call for people to repent from their sin and trust in Jesus Christ alone to save them. To only give them the good news. Yes, it's the good news, but you don't get the good news. You don't understand the good news if you don't have an understanding of the bad news. You are a rebel against God. You deserve his wrath. Without you understanding sin to some degree, I'm not saying you've got to be able to write a systematic theology, but you've got to be able to understand that you are a sinner, that you have rebelled against God, that you have rejected his rule and reign over your life, that you are outside the kingdom of God. And the only way to get into the kingdom of God is through Jesus Christ. And you need to repent of your sin and trust in God. If we, if we, we might say it differently than I've just said it, but, but those things need to be said. Otherwise, we're watering it down. A tampered gospel is God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, which just so happens to line up exactly with your wonderful plan for your, your, your life, which you had before you were born again. A tampered gospel is, in, in essence, taking Jesus and treating him like he's a, he's a cherry on the top of your Sunday. You just put him on the top of what you're already doing. A tampered gospel says, Come as you are, which is true, but then stay as you are. It makes a mockery of God's grace and of what it means to be united to Christ, teaching people directly or indirectly that if you believe the gospel, it will really only change where you go when you die and not how you live the rest of your life. When people tamper with the gospel, there's no room for Jesus' teachings. I mean, think about, Jesus didn't make it easy to follow him. Oftentimes, he made it really, really hard. He addressed people's idols. He focused on them. He said, you've got to sell everything, rich young ruler. Give it to the poor and then come follow me. He addressed the idol in his heart. He got right at the forefront of what was keeping that, that rich young man from enjoying the grace of God. He confronted it. 
A tampered gospel has no room for teachings like Jesus' teaching in Mark 8, 34 through 38. Just think about this teaching and how it would fit in a watered-down gospel because it doesn't fit. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. That's not easy teaching. That's not your best life now. That's not a watered-down gospel. It doesn't fit with that. And so we need to tell people, if we're evangelizing honestly, the truth about their condition apart from Christ. They are under God's wrath, and rightfully so. They're enemies of the cross. They need Jesus. We need to tell them that. We need to tell them about the promise of God's grace, his love and peace in Christ to all who trust in and follow Jesus. We do them no favors, ultimately, by watering down the gospel. And that really is where I think, for the most part, it's coming from. You know, we're going to make it sound, I know they struggle with this, I know they struggle with that, so we're just going to, we're going to tweak it, we're going to adjust it, we're going to give them the gospel that they need. They need the same gospel that you and I need, the very same gospel. And some of those hard truths, now I'm not saying we purposely offend them, we've talked about that, we're not looking to offend them personally, we're looking to present a gospel to them that will offend unregenerate, opposed to God's rule and reign, people. And we do them no favors because we confuse the gospel, Later on, when they open their Bible and they read it and they say, wait a second, this, this doesn't fit with the, your best life now, the prosperity gospel, this, this view that I was given when you evangelized me. In the end, we confuse. We do more damage if we tamper with the gospel. So, church, we must not be ashamed of the gospel. And the next way in which we are to evangelize will help us to evangelize honestly. What do we need to overcome this struggle that some of us might have with tampering, watering down the gospel? We must evangelize by faith. Everything we do as Christians requires faith, and that includes evangelism. Look again at what Paul writes in verses 3 through 6. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. When we evangelize by faith, we are believing that God is more powerful than Satan. That God can give spiritually blind unbelievers the sight that they need to see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. That's what we're believing when we evangelize by faith. See, no matter how clearly we share the gospel, no matter what method, approach, or tool we use, no matter how good we are at evangelism, apart from God doing what only he can do, open eyes, grant them repentance and faith, every single person that we evangelize will remain blind. That's the biblical reality. It takes God to open their eyes. We need to believe that the, the same God who said at creation, let light shine out of darkness, the one who spoke light into existence, who said there's, there's all darkness, light, and light was there. That same God 
is powerful enough to shine his light, the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, into that person's life. That's what we're believing when we're sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with people. At least we need to be believing that. So church, don't trust in yourself when you are evangelizing. Your words, your method, your outline, trust in God who alone can bring that person to himself through the gospel that you are sharing with them. And that's why it's so important that we don't mess with the gospel. You mess with the gospel, you're giving them something that cannot save them. They're going to be believing a lie, a watered-down half-truth. So remember, brothers and sisters, what Paul writes in verse 7 when you're evangelizing by faith. The surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. It's crazy. Share the gospel, and this is our story, whether it was because our parents shared it with us from the time we were little, or somebody like, for, in my case, somebody simply laid out the gospel, the same gospel that I heard for 20 years at an evangelistic gathering. That gospel just shared in word the facts of the truth of the gospel given to people is the power of God, and he uses it to shine forth his light. But there's another aspect of evangelism that requires faith in God as well. We need to believe that whatever struggles we face when we evangelize, whether it be fear of man, being rejected, of conflict in our family, whatever it might be, we need to trust that God will provide us, his people, with what we need, the words, the wisdom, the scripture to share the gospel with that person. So evangelism requires that we have faith in God to work through us and faith that God can change the minds and hearts of those who we are evangelizing. So there's two aspects of faith involved in evangelism. God can change their hearts. The, the staunchest atheist, the one who's living for the world, who finds no joy in God and is an enemy of the cross, God has the power to overcome their hard heart, shine forth his, his, his light reveal to them the glory and the grace and the love that he has for them in Christ and bring them to life and cause them to be born again. You've got to believe that when you're sharing the gospel. And you've got to believe that God's going to help you communicate that when you're sharing the gospel. We also need to evangelize sacrificially. By that I mean we need to be willing to cross what, what British pastor Rico Tice refers to as the pain line in his book, Honest Evangelism, How to Talk About Jesus When It's Tough a book that I would highly recommend to you. It's not long. It gets right at the difficult things, helps you remember the, the reality of, of, of what it looks like to evangelize if you're going to do these, these things that we're called to do in sharing the gospel, Honest Evangelism by Rico Tice. And in the book, Tice writes, if you tell non-Christians about Jesus, it will be painful. Now, I would add to that, sometimes it's not that painful. The pain is more imagined, and then the, God works and changes their heart, and there's no real opposition. But there's some, there's some pain that you're going to experience, just struggling there to share the gospel. But in the long run, if you continue to be evangelistic and share the gospel, you're going to experience pain. You will be rejected. Tice goes on to write, If you live in the West... You live in a culture that is increasingly hostile to Christianity. That's just how it is. In the UK, I think we're pretty much at the point where to hold Christian values and to speak Christian truth is to get hated. In the US, it seems that, we're, it seems that that's where it's heading. And elsewhere in the world, it's far, far worse. Church, the natural desire that we have is to avoid getting hurt. And that comes in handy when we're trying to escape burning buildings 
when we're crossing the street because it'll remind us to look both ways so we don't get hit by a car. That comes in handy when we see a rabid dog coming after us and even though we've got a bum leg, we're able to run and flee from the rabid dog. It, it's handy in that way. But when it comes to evangelism, our desire to avoid getting hurt can keep us from proclaiming Christ. We need to be willing to cross the pain line. There's a line that we have to cross and it's going to be painful at times. It almost certainly for us today won't be physical pain that we'll endure. It will be conflict in our families. But Jesus talks about that in Matthew 10. I did not come to bring peace but a sword, to turn a father against a son, a mother against a daughter, a mother-in-law against a daughter-in-law, a son against a, a son-in-law against a, a father-in-law. He, he, there's going to be conflict when you talk about Christ. It's going to be painful at times. There, the, the pain we will endure will more likely be ridicule, though, or shaming, name-calling. It might be the loss of respect, a friendship that we value that, that, that starts to fizzle away, a position, a power that we once had. But to evangelize requires sacrifice. Paul speaks of this in verses 8 through 12. 8, 8 through 12. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Think about this. Paul could have ended the affliction at any time. Paul could have stopped the perplexing. He could have avoided the persecution, the beatings that he endured, the stonings, the, the, the jail experience that he experienced. But he continually, over and over again, crossed the pain line. Why? Because Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worthy of us crossing whatever pain line, imaginary or true pain line that we need to cross. He's worth it. He deserves the glory and praise and worship that he will get as we share the gospel and not all respond, but some will respond by God's sovereign grace. He deserves worship and praise. And so he's worthy of us crossing the pain line. Paul wanted to follow Christ's example of suffering an example that we're all to follow. He wanted to show Christians what it looks like to follow Jesus, and he wanted to share the gospel with those who desperately needed to hear the good news about Jesus. Like Paul, now we won't be exactly like Paul. I don't think any of us will be just like Paul. We're not going to experience the same things that he did, maybe not even close. But still we need to be willing to be afflicted. Are you willing to be afflicted when it comes to evangelism? I know I struggle with that. Are you willing to be perplexed? Maybe you're already perplexed and it's not even about evangelism, you're just perplexed. Why not do it for Jesus? Are you willing to be persecuted, struck down? You need to be, and here's why, because it's part of the Christian life. It's, it's part of how God sanctifies us, increases our joy, our treasure being in Christ, and removes idols, whether they be family, friendships, stuff, whatever it is. It's part of the process of becoming more like Jesus. It's part of our discipleship. As we follow Jesus, our King, and proclaim his greatness, it's one of the important ways that we continue to lay down our lives, lay down our pride, follow Jesus, and suffer for Jesus and for the sake of others. 
In another way, and this might seem obvious, and maybe you don't even think it needs to be said, but I think it needs to be said, we need to evangelize with the Bible. The message that we are proclaiming does not come from us. It comes from God and is recorded in the Bible. So we need to be pointing the people that we're sharing the gospel with to the source of our knowledge, God's holy word. He has given us an awesome book. There's nothing to be ashamed of this book. This precious book, and as I've said before, and I got it from another passage, when we open it, God speaks to his people and to those he's calling out of darkness. So use the book. I know it's only a passing mention, but, but, Paul, but Paul alludes to, to, to Scripture and, and uses Scripture and the importance of Scripture in making an argument in verses 13 and 14. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, what's he talking about? What, what's been, he's talking about the Bible. I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. Paul supports his point that he has the same spirit of faith by quoting Psalm 116.10. He uses scripture to make his argument. In considering the promise of verse 14, that the same God who raised the Lord Jesus will raise all Christians from the dead and bring them into his presence, how do we know that? How do we know that the resurrection is going to happen? We know it because of passages like 1 Corinthians 15 that tell us not only was Jesus raised, but we will be raised also, just like him. Other passages like 1 Thessalonians 4 remind us of this reality. We will be caught up in the air. We will meet him and all those who have died in Christ. And we'll come triumphant, rejoicing in our risen king, and we will be raised as well. We know these things because the Bible tells us so. Using the Bible when we evangelize doesn't mean that we'll always pull out our Bible. Oh, wait, I want to tell you about Jesus. I'm going to go get my Bible. It doesn't mean that we always do that, but it should be kind of normal for the Bible to be there. If it's on our smartphone, that's fine. You know, let me pull up my, my ESV Bible app. It's a great app. Let me pull it up and we'll pull out the Bible. Let me, let me show you where it says this in the Bible. The Bible says, God's word says, the scriptures teach us, should be phrases that we use when we evangelize. It doesn't mean that every other sentence has to be a scripture verse, but it does mean that we should be quoting from the Bible. We don't want people to think that Christianity is just this subjective feeling, merely a personal experience that we've had, to be in the same lines as every other experience, religious experience, supposedly, that somebody has. Because that's not the reality. The gospel is truth. And we're telling people that it's found in the Bible. So why not introduce them to the scriptures when you're introducing them to Christ? One of my favorite Martin Luther quotes has to do with his explanation of the Reformation. Luther a, is a very interesting guy. He's, he's quite humorous. You look at some of the things that, that Luther quote, some of his, his apologetics, some of his defending of the faith as he, he's going back and forth with the Catholic Church and the writing letters. He'll make you laugh. There's some funny stuff that Luther says, but, but this is one of my favorite quotes from Luther. Luther famous, famously said in regards to how the Reformation came about, I did nothing, the Word did everything. I love that. You think about Luther's gifts, if, you, if you're familiar at all with Martin Luther and how God used him to bring about the Reformation, to, to bring the gospel back to the forefront. He says, I did nothing. You might say, Luther, you're gifted. God gave you all these talents and abilities. I did nothing, Luther says. The word did everything. Meaning Luther preached the word, taught the word, and he translated God's word into the common language of the people 
And, that, and he believes that, and, and I'm with him, that that's what brought about the Reformation. It reminds me of Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Christian, I don't care how powerful your word is, how, how sharp you think your word is. Your word is not as sharp and powerful as the word. So why would you use a dull sword? Why would you use something that you, you've come up with on your own that doesn't come from Scripture? Because your word doesn't have the same power. It cannot convict. It cannot reveal the Christ of the Scriptures. It cannot explain or display the gospel like God's word can. So use it the living, sharpest, strongest, most powerful word that you could ever use and trust that the Spirit of God will use the word of God going forth to bring the light of Christ into someone's life. Then God will get the glory. The work will be done. You will do your part. But use the word when you evangelize. Lastly, we need to evangelize winsomely. This is my catch-all phrase to say that when we evangelize, we need to remember that we are sharing the greatest news possible with someone, that there's no better news that we could ever share with them than the good news, that it's wonderful, this this gospel that we're sharing with them. It's amazing. It's life-changing, soul-saving, make-you-want-to-cry-and-laugh-at-the-same-time kind of news. This is glorious news that we're telling them. It's too good to be true, but it's true. So our tone in evangelism, our heart in evangelism, our attitude when we share this reality should be winsome. It should fit with the importance, the greatness, the glory of the message that we are sharing. I mean, think about it. If I, 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 got, some, I got some really good news. Sit down. So Jesus came and um, he died and was raised and he paid for your sins. And you should believe that. Come to church with me because then you can wake up early on Sunday morning and come with me, give up a little sleep. It's great. It's really good news. That's silly. And yet, because of our fear, and I I know I'm kind of going extreme on that, but because of our fear of man, because of whatever reasons we give ourselves why we should not open our mouths and evangelize, that's often kind of the tone that we bring. Okay, I I know this might sound offensive, and, you know, I I know that that you might not like what I have to say, but I really, and I just need to get this off my chest before I die, I want to tell you something. So so just sit down, let me get through this, and then then we can go on to our our lives, whatever they look like before. Oh, no, how sad. Let me tell you about the most glorious reality. God made us, and we rebelled against him. There are moments where we might come to tears. I was an enemy of the cross. You, because you reject Christ, are still an enemy of the cross. You have no hope right now. You will go to hell. I don't want you to go to hell. Even more than that, I don't want you to waste any more time worshiping the things of this world. I want you to worship. I want, to use, I want you to use your hands and your lips and your skills and your gifts to worship the living God. So let me tell you this glorious good news. Jesus came. He is the God-man, and he lived, and he lived a perfect, sinless life to fulfill the law for you. And he became your substitute, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he went to the cross and he died for your sins so that you could be forgiven and reconciled to God and his people. And you could live life as it's meant to be lived with God. Let me tell you this awesome news with a smile on my face and tears in my eyes. That's the tone. And I know there's different personalities and 
And I get that, and I'm not saying you need to say it exactly like me or with my tone or my, my attitude or the, the exact words, but, but that type of thing should come out winsome. We're, we're using our lips to tell people the greatest thing that we could ever tell them. God has sent his son who is the God-man to pay for their sins, and if they would only turn from their sin and trust in him, they would be born again and be brought into his kingdom now and forever. That, that needs to be winsome. It needs to line up our hearts and our attitudes and our words, our facial expressions, whatever it is, needs to line up with the glory of that message. 2 Corinthians 4.15, For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Church, when we are evangelizing, we are extending God's message of grace to people. That is so awesome. And if you think about that long enough, as you pray, as, you, as you're talking, and in the middle of that you become anxious and nervous and you begin to fear what, what might happen if you clearly lay out the gospel in that conversation or in a future conversation, just remember this. You are extending the message of God's grace to that person. Nothing to be ashamed of in that. Nothing more loving that you could do for that person than extend the message of God's grace. And have this in mind. The goal is not simply for them to, to pray a prayer, but that they would use their life to, to bring glory to God. That God would be glorified by more and more people as they turn from sin and trust in Jesus and are reconciled to a holy, loving, and gracious God. We're telling them about the God who made them and came to save them, who died on the cross as their substitute to bring them into his kingdom. There's no better news. So we should share it in a way that lines up with how good that news is. There should be excitement and passion, humble confidence. Even if we're shaking in our boots or our shoes or our sandals or whatever we're shaking in, there should be joy coming out of our hearts. Another way that we might describe winsome evangelism is that it is full of the fruits of the Spirit. Just think about the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. What, what, great, what, what great reminder there in the fruits of the Spirit of how we should evangelize. With love, with joy, with peace. They're not our enemies. They're enemies of God. They're not our enemies, and we're telling them how they can be reconciled to God. Patience. They might say some really mean things. They, they might say some really stupid things. They don't even make sense. But we, we need to be patient and, and kind, good and faithful. Keep on sharing the gospel. Different ways, come, you know, knowing that in the long-term view of, of some relationships, you, you might not be able to lay it all out, but you come back to conversations and you focus on, a, on one truth and one reality that they need to, to look at and consider when it comes to the gospel. Be gentle. doesn't mean not passionate, but gentle and self-controlled. Church, if we are evangelizing honestly, by faith, sacrificially with the Bible and winsomely, it won't guarantee that, that everyone or even most of the people that we share the gospel with will become a Christian, but it will mean that we are fostering a culture in our church of healthy biblical evangelism, which is what we want to do. We want to increase our, our evangelistic presence in this community. God put us here in part to reach the lost in this area. Those in our lives, whether we work with them, we live with them, their family members, friends, neighbors. And what will be the result of this biblical evangelism increasing among us and in this local church? Discipleship. 
we will grow as followers of Jesus Christ. If you've ever evangelized, and I hope that, <laughs> that you, you can't say you've never done it because if, if you, come on, you're missing out. If you've ever evangelized, you leave that conversation, hopefully not first saying, I wish I would have said this. You'll get to that. I wish I would have said this. I should have quoted this passage. Or we should have talked more about this. Next time I want to do that. But you'll leave with this feeling of, of joy because you obeyed. And you love that person well by pointing them to Christ. There's this great joy that comes from obeying the Lord. This, this sense of peace. Okay, it didn't go exactly the way I wanted, but I was obedient to my Father in heaven and I shared his good news with this person. And not only will we grow as disciples as we evangelize, but by God's sovereign grace, we will see some of the very same people who we share the gospel with, repent and trust in Christ. Some of them will be baptized they will join this local church or some other local church in their area, celebrate the Lord's Supper with us. I mean, just think about that. People right now that we're praying for, people that we're evangelizing uh, right now, people that, that we're, we're, we're thinking about, we're in community groups with and we're praying for, oh, just pray for, for this person. I've been sharing the gospel and they're really opposed. Some of these people are going to come to Christ. And when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, some of them are going to be in here in a year or two. And we're going to look around and say, I remember praying for them. I remember sharing the gospel with them. And we're going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper, celebrating the gospel, the reality that we are reconciled to God and to one another with these people that right now are not Christians because God called us to evangelize and we obey. And he blesses that evangelism and they're added to this local church and to Christ's kingdom. I want that. I don't want to miss out on that. I don't want you to miss out on that. I don't want you to miss out on the joy that is going to come if we evangelize. So much joy. Yes, there's pain, but there's more joy. And we will grow as a church in Christ together. It will become infectious. That guy's evangelizing. He's so shy. He's so quiet. But he's telling people about Jesus. We have people in our community group that, that are doing some wonderful evangelism. And as a pastor, as their pastor, as I'm preaching these things, I'm, I'm so blessed. And in the most wonderful way, I'm challenged to be more evangelistic. I find myself looking for more avenues, not in some competition with anybody in my community group, but just because I, I know the joy that they're experiencing, the hardship that they're facing, and how they're following God, and I want to be a part of it more and more. So I'm sharing the gospel with my, my hairstylist as she cuts my hair. I'm trying to talk to people at the park, not so that I would receive any fame or glory, but so that Christ would receive glory and praise that he deserves, and so that all of us would experience more joy in Christ. As some of these people that you're evangelizing and I'm evangelizing come to know Christ and worship Jesus with us. They're going to worship God, and God will be glorified. So let's do this, church, more and more. Let's grow into a evangelistic church more than we already are. Now let's pray for God's help. Father, we thank you for this time to focus in on evangelism for three weeks. We do know that evangelism is not just a series that we have as a church for three weeks or ten weeks or even for twenty weeks, but it's part of being a Christian. I pray that you would help all of us, especially those of us who struggle to open our mouths and proclaim the greatest news that we could ever proclaim to another person, the gospel. I pray that you would increase our passion for your glory to be made known in the world through the saving of sinners who will worship you once they repent and trust in Christ. I pray that you would give us a, a greater passion for the lost who desperately need to know 
Christ and trust and follow him. And I pray this all for your glory and our joy in Jesus' name. Amen.